Hey, and welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Walsh, currently the mental skills coach with Chiefs Rugby Club and Scotland Rugby, as well as having developed mental performance programs for a range of different sports across a range of different countries. Expect to learn how developing mental skills is different for each athlete, taking accountability for your mental game, integrating mental skills into teams, the importance of coaches buy-in in mental training, and much more. But before we get started, please do me the great favor and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're following along on or listening on. It really does make a huge, huge difference, and it's the easiest and cheapest way to support what this show is all about. It allows us to grow the show and get on more guests, more episodes, so I thank you so much for doing that. In other news, don't forget to join The Game Plan, a free email that I send out every Friday morning with inspiration, motivation, and ideas on mindset, mental health, and your perspective. Simply click the link in the description below to join or head over to lewishatchet.com forward slash the dash game dash plan. Thank you so much, and I'll see you Friday morning. Also, if you're interested in developing your mindset or your mental health and know the value of putting your mental game first, you may find the MindStrong Academy helpful. It's an online academy designed to help you become a more confident version of yourself. Not only will you gain access to monthly mindset masterclasses, but also motivational videos, inspirational listening and reading, live podcasts, and much more. The subscription is the cost of a coffee per week, and you can get started with a 14-day free trial. As well as this, you can have the option to sign up to the MindStrong Mindset course, and as a part of that offer, you can get the MindStrong Academy completely free for life. As a listener of this podcast, you get a 20% discount by using the code RYGMindStrong at checkout. That's RYGMindStrong at checkout, and there's a link in the description of this episode. I'll see you inside. But on to today's episode with Dr. Scott Goldman. Enjoy. Aaron, thank you so much for jumping on this show and this episode. I'm really excited for this conversation. Thanks for joining. Yeah, mate. Thank you. It's good to be here. So we were just having a bit preamble about your recent paper that that was all around essentially mental skills integration in teams, but we'll get mm. on to that. I, I'd like to just start the conversation, just giving people a little bit of your background of sort of your own world in sport and then also where you're at now and the people that you're working with. So my friend, start wherever you want to start with that one. Yeah, pretty um, just a, a real love for sport probably. I can't remember not loving sport. So you know, I grew up in a very sporting family. My, my grandfather was president of the rugby club. Then my father became the president of the rugby club. So it was sort of inbred into me. Um, in the region I lived in were a lot of good athletes. So I come from Hawke's Bay, which is has some like quite nice weather. So you got really good, strong, fast athletes. So, yeah, I played everything. I can't. Yeah, honestly, can't remember a time. Even now, like I'm, I'm 47 this month. Is I just, I just love sport. I love competition. I love everything associated with it. All the difficulties and the things you have to overcome. I just think it's an amazing microcosm of life. That you know, and just get the privilege. Honestly, for me, of working in it every day. So, um, had some really different experiences. So across lots of different sports and then also with both teams that were wildly successful and teams that were absolutely horrible so sort of you get the full gamut once you've been in it as long as I have because you get to you get these special occasions where things just come together and your team is just rolling and then you'll get times where you don't think you'll ever see another win again so I suppose that's part of the massive attraction for me I know it's not for everyone but the idea that every week is judgment day and you know, you're going to test and see how good you are and then you got to go again and either keep something moving that's going well or pick stuff up off the ground after it's been broken a little bit. Like that to me is probably the most invigorating and most fun part of what I get to do. What brought about your sort of love for the mental side of the game, of, of sport? Probably my own frustration, you know. Really? 
Yeah, I suppose just being, you know, pretty decent athlete growing up and then not really knowing how to translate what I thought I was like, you know, probably one way of saying is didn't translate potential into performance and had a capacity or capability that was, you know, I thought was pretty decent, but because of, say, pressure or not understanding the mental side, because there's nothing like it when I was growing up, it's sort of what it meant was that I had this great frustration, but no answers. Mm. And that was probably what motivated me to get into the work was that I kept on coming across people who are obviously playing at a much higher level than I ever did, but they were experiencing the same frustrations. And, you know, why do I prepare well? Why do I do all the things, tick all the boxes? Why do I go to the gym? Why do I do all my skill work? And then I get out there and then once the lights turn on, it feels like all those behaviors are now foreign to me and I can't, you know, actualize or grab hold of what I think I'm doing. And so one of, for me, you know, probably the personal side of it is one of the the biggest frustrations you ever watch if you've worked in sports for a decent amount of time is people who just don't actualize or realize their potential. And, you know, or people that work incredibly hard and you see how hard they work, how much it means to them. And we never get to see the best of them because, uh, they can't, you know, maneuver through the mental demands of the of the sport. So it was probably more the, you know, why I sort of got into that side of it. Um, it was intriguing, um, you know, like, and I was probably brought up in an era where you either had it or you didn't from the mental side. That was sort of the conclusion, like, oh, that guy's good mentally, that guy's rubbish mentally. Um, and it was seen as more of a personality-driven performance aspect rather than what I think it is. It's a skill. And then if you're not working on a skill, you're not going to grow up. Um, so, you know, and that's probably where the mental side is starting to grow, I reckon, a lot more now, where we're seeing it primarily used to increase someone's capability rather than an ambulance at the bottom of the hill for someone's failing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's even in a previous episode with Mustafa Saka, um, who's a lot of his research was around resilience, we spoke mm. about how people can easily get can easily get labelled as mm. just not being resilient, yeah. and that that's actually he even spoke about how people may not show resilience in certain environments, but they'll show it in others. So yeah. I, I gave a really easy example for me was the fact that if, if anyone saw me in school when I was in maths, I'd have been mm. labelled as very non-resilient. But if they saw me in sport in cricket, they would labelled me as resilient. And everything around sports so the environment was the the thing that brought out certain mental skills and but the idea that resilience is a skill that you develop and and this is what we're talking about and yeah you tend to you tend to have more energy to develop resilience if you love where resilience is needed yeah yeah totally yeah it's just placing so if you need to be resilient to play a sport and you love the sport you're going to work out a, a way to become resilient but as you said like it was something you don't have a lot of care or passion or love for then all right you know that's what and i don't know if he went into it in his research but i think there's a real interesting parallel between love for what you're doing and the ability equals the ability to be more resilient yeah i think there's i think there's bits around motivation the motivation Mm -hmm. levels and the intrinsic and extrinsic motivations and the uh, how autonomous people are towards what they do and, and resilience that yeah essentially if you if you love it more you'll probably you'll try harder um but how, how did you, yeah, how did you start working with teams? How did you start working with athletes? Where did it was it just a putting yourself out there, or was it started in conversations? And no, it's just all, my. I think all of my work throughout my career has always been relationally based. Mm. So you know, like I don't. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't think I've ever applied for a job. <laughs> I'm just, I was thinking about that, like. Because I had to send my CV in for another bit of work I'm doing, and I'm like, I don't even know if I have a CV. Yeah, <laughs> it was more for you know the board to approve, but it was just yeah. I suppose yeah, I've never I've never uh, actively sought work, or it's always been through relationships, and then obviously word of mouth, and you know those sort of things begin to grow and develop, and you sort of find yourself into these sort of roles and. 
you know, I think in sports, it's it's particularly high performance. It's kind of a it's a sort of an unfair world, and sometimes like the rich get richer, and then but how do you get into that wealth if you know what I mean? Like if you yeah. do good work and your team goes well, then you have heaps and heaps and heaps of opportunities. But then what do you do if you're just at the beginning of the journey? And you know, I think everybody needs a break somewhere along the line. You get lucky or I don't know, people don't like to use that term, but I think there's a, a bit of, you know, there's a, certainly a, a bit in there where you have to put it down to simple luck. Yeah. Like you happen to be in the right place at the right time and the team was ready for what you were bringing to the table and it made a difference. I think that's sort of an underestimated part of it. Like and I think of everyone that I've admired and followed over the years, someone got a break somewhere along the line and they took <laughs> the opportunity, which is awesome. But, you know, I think it's it's a difficult world to get into. And, you know, and I think particularly with young practitioners, the understanding that you're not going to go from university to international sport and like there's a, but there isn't really a defined pathway, particularly in the mental side of performance. It's, well, where do you start? I mean, I probably get 10 or 20 messages a week through Twitter or LinkedIn from young aspiring, you know, professionals going, where do I start? And it's like, unfortunately, probably have to volunteer somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind really of like- sucked. Just done, you know, a five-year degree and spent X number of money and your first sort of assignment is, well, you got to go volunteer at your local club that pays nothing. Maybe get a, you know, packet of chips and a bottle of Coke afterwards. But I suppose that's just the reality of the industry. But I've also heard you talk about how, what you you're very practical and how you do things you you you've recently delved into a lot more literature and the research but previous you had spoken i'd heard you speak about how you were more practical in your approach but that is that's like you could transfer that idea idea into to an athlete right like you you got to do your groundwork to get to get where you are so whether that is really early on and you're using your experience but yeah you the there's nothing wrong with doing something that you know you want to do for a long time and just having the first early years and, and really sort of grinding out. I think when I gave, I was speaking to someone the other day about when I gave keynotes, when I first first started giving keynotes just after my retirement, all right, I was 26, but I went straight into it, giving keynotes. I didn't step into a room and say, right, I want to command thousands of pounds here. I did you do it for free. I literally do it yeah. to to anyone that would listen, and then it's gradually grown over time, and then more and more people come in, and it's yeah, it's just building up that that wealth of experience, I guess. But moving on to to you working with an athlete, so one thing yeah. I'm interested you you for listeners, you are literally the other side of the world right now. So yeah. we're, I'm in the UK, you're in New Zealand. What are you seeing in sport just i'd say over the last three years that you would potentially be addressing more right now in yeah. athletes if you, if you could categorize it, if you maybe theme it is there a, is there an, an a theme that you are addressing more than you ever have or you're having to put more into at the moment yeah it's a good question i don't actually know if there's anything that sort of sticks out as far as but there's definitely trends that are generational hmm. which have to do with the athletes now that probably wouldn't there. So I'll give you say two or three examples is like athletes need to play for a coach who cares for them. And like that, it's not trans transactional coaching, for example, or the, you know, the old gaffer barking out demands, treating people with a little bit of disdain to keep them uncomfortable is so archaic and so gone. Mm. So, you know, like, the, the, the whole idea of personal connection as a performance enhancer is massive. You know, another thing would be that someone's experience in the environment would be the major factor on who they play for rather than loyalty to a jersey. So the idea that you could endure, you know, idiot coaches or environments you didn't enjoy because you had to some have this, you know, commitment to the jersey, I think that's gone, for example. I don't think that's... We see how many players shift and lose potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds because the environment is so unenjoyable. You know, probably another thing would be that social media has created uh, interesting narratives 
for athletes. So, you know, what do they do with their social media interaction where many of them need to use it to, you know, meet the needs or the demands of sponsors or it's a way for them like to express what they're up to with families and friends who aren't around them. But yet it's a pretty loud voice and it can be pretty, yeah, pretty ugly. Then I suppose the other thing just to sort of round it out would be they are not willing to sacrifice their well-being on the altar of performance. And that's probably something that's quite different from previous years where your well-being was certainly put down the list and you just did what you needed to do to be able to perform. Um, I think athletes are much more aware of sustainability around performance now than they maybe were. Like, I want to be able to do this for 10, 12, 13, 14 years. Therefore, I have to find a rhythm that helps me, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually be well before, you know, that's a priority. Whereas, you know, we know probably, you know, I'm a bit older growing up where guys just wreck themselves in the name of performance on and off the field and their personal well-being was seen as something, well, why would you worry about that? You've just got a job to do. Well, that's completely different now. I guess also social media has brought about stories that we're seeing mm -hmm. now of people after their careers and that yeah. then gives people the foresight of going, well, I really, yeah. I really don't want that for myself. I, I think even in cricket, a big part of my, when I retired from the game professionally, a big part of my decision was, okay, my, my spine is broken. I have choices to do this, this, and this, but they're very extreme choices that are like potentially that they will impact my life down the down the line. And I had seen many athletes that had had these things to, to eke out months, maybe a few years of a career, but at the expense of hitting their 50s and yeah, think maybe having to have resurgeries and all sorts of things. And I, I, for me, having seen those stories that made my decision or listening to the advice a little bit easier. But I think if I hadn't had that, hadn't seen those stories, then I might have just jumped straight into it and gone, fit, get this done, fix, and yeah, then yeah. I've been, and then the repercussions down the line. But from a well-being point of view, yeah, we, we probably don't need another story right now of people coming out and struggling from transitioning out or the... It's a difficult one because... You know, as much as I know, when you're playing and you have your PD time, you probably don't use it very well because it just doesn't feel relevant in, in that moment. And, you know, the number of stories of guys coming back and speaking to younger players saying, I wish I had actually used the PD time, my personal development time, to set up a career or to buy some houses or to educate myself. Um, I think there's quite, quite a few of them now are going, man, I got to nail this stuff too. Do you address that in your work? What What would you, and if you do, what do you advise athletes who are so focused on their their sport and maybe not giving themselves time to develop things outside of their sport? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a challenging one because as you know, at the highest level, it requires pretty much everything you got. Mm. So it's just knowing, okay, when I'm at the field or training or playing, I have to be 100% on and I have to be 100% committed. But I find those with hobbies or interests or, you know, work experiences that they do within their career tend to have a much more balanced approach to their career. And, you know, I think, you know, what we have, you know, I think it's kind of kind of cool. Like we have a lot of guys that we have, you know, on a day off, we have, I think, 12 to 16 guys who go play golf. Mm. And that's healthy. Like it's awesome for them. They get out, they get with each other, do something different. Um, but as far as the professional development side, I think it's, you know, like I imagine you're a classic case is you don't see it until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, shoot. Now that's why that was really important. And, and in some senses, I'm not that interested on trying to fast forward that with people. I think they've got to go on their own journey and you can put everything in front of them. But, you know, it's up to them whether they decide to partake. And I think forcing it doesn't work. But, you know, I think it's particularly those guys once I hit 30, particularly a sport like rugby, you only probably got two or three years left. They tend to be the guys that go, okay, well, I've really got to get moving. Now, the good news is we still have a bunch of young guys who are 21 buying homes, understanding that this doesn't last forever. Um, yeah, but it's a difficult, a difficult day. Like, 
everyone else would say, oh, just do your well-being, just do your, sorry, PD stuff, you'll be sweet, just develop a career. When you're fighting tooth and nail every week to play, it does get relegated in your list of priorities. I have very rarely seen many people do it really well. I think previous guest on the podcast, Dale Stain, like an absolute legend yeah. of test cricket, he he has surfing, skateboarding, like he fishing, but fishing was a really big one. And he he was always doing those. And but those again, I don't didn't ask him, but I'm going to assume they came from his childhood. Uh, yeah. And they 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 played quite a, an interesting role in just how he approaches life. But not only that, the game, like you talk to him, he he would talk very much about crossing the line, turning on his persona of of a competitor. But then when he's off, he'll have a beer with you, chill. He's he's off fishing, skating, surfing. And, th and there was that great balance. And there were guys that I played with that I think if anything they did and anything I see now, the great ones, they they really compartmentalize it. Even a rugby player I, I'd worked with recently, he really, he, he was the first one I'd ever talked about, heard him talk about playing rugby as work, but he still yeah, loved yeah. it. He still loved it. He absolutely loved it. So he really enjoyed his work, but he said, I'm off to work. <laughs> and I yeah. think it was just even that, compartmentalizing of it meant that when he literally left the door mm. to go to work he switched it on and then when he came yeah. home he had his art he had his family had his friends and his interests and that was that that for me was just a he was a really young guy and and i was really impressed by it but again it's he's probably the he's an outlier at the moment yeah and i think sometimes like um i think there's periods of your career where you have to lock in you know, like it might not be like I think balance probably isn't possible. I don't know, not complete balance. This is not a normal job. Like, like yesterday we had the King's birthday weekend here in New Zealand, and and the Monday was King's birthday weekend, and our team was still travelling, so I didn't go in, and I was like, I think this is the first public holiday I haven't worked in seven years or eight years. <laughs> um, you know, it's just a different way. Like you've got to accept that, like. You know, like you can't, you think about anyone who's done anything substantial, there is this little element of obsession and sacrifice that does look pretty unbalanced. Um, what's the cost of that? Who knows? That's an individual question for everyone. But, you know, I think there's times where you just have to lock in and go, listen, I'm going to, whether it's the next 12, 18, 24 months, I'm going to have to go to a whole nother level. I'm going to have to dedicate my way I never have before. And I still think we got to allow for that. I don't think we can get so the other way where we're now looking at professional sport and asking for a normalized, you know, a general population application of well-being. Well, you're dreaming. Like, yeah. you know, and I'm just in the middle of like doing a little bit more research now with a with a colleague. And, you know, one of the things that we want to look at is well-being in elite sports. Like, what is it? What is it not? And so right now, well-being is mostly discussed through the lens of a normal life, <laughs> yeah. which I yeah. just think is just not that relevant. You know, <laughs> like, it's just not that relevant. Like, these guys and girls don't live normal lives. It's it, it can be incredibly demanding and completely consuming and all of that. So how do we define well-being in that? And, you know, I know, like, my mate Cody Royal has done some really good work around coaches' well-being and trying to see them much more balanced um and i love and appreciate his work but i think you know even he would admit there's a gnawing question around that like what is balance hmm. in this context it's not you don't go at nine to five you don't you know like you you're watching film or you're just yeah but that's why i reckon the love for it's so important because if you you love it you'll do that and it's not a burden it's something you enjoy and so even, you know, that's the, the greatest part of the work that I get to do is like, there's not a day I don't want to get to work. Yeah. I, th I think that's, yeah. that's so important. The, you, yeah, you, your love for the game allows you to create the sacrifices that are needed because those sacrifices, yeah. you have to make them. Otherwise, everyone would just do it. And there is that line we have to draw where, yeah, if you're willing to do, elite sport there are sacrifices that you will take personally physically mentally emotionally 
there's all of this that comes along with it but that's the that's the beauty of it as well it's just i think you can do it well you can do it. you can arm yourself to deal with all of those challenges yeah well, i think like talking about cricket like think of steve smith who i don't know but like you know by all reports he's pretty obsessed with his craft yeah knowing um, a few people that have played with him yeah i'm sure he'd be frustrated from time to time and i think when we have seen him mentally under the pump that was more about leadership than it was about batting and so do you say to steve smith or you know like kane williamson was another example there's so many stories here in new zealand of him you know shadow batting in his hotel room and people hearing the bat knocking at three in the morning and but it wasn't you know like i think that's the difference between mastery and obsession is like mastery is driven by joy whereas obsession is driven by fear mm-hmm. and you know i think it's quite a quite an important thing to you know so are you doing the work because you love it or are you doing the work to avoid a failure mm-hmm. and yeah. that line's quite blurry <laughs> yeah for sure yeah yeah so yeah. so what is your what the failure based of- stuff's not sustainable that's my point is yeah is, is the obsession stuff like driven by fear and fear of failing like that's a tormenting mental process for someone to go through every week yeah i've heard of i've heard of even cricketers as a good example um an ex-pro that i knew who before his debut he was up till at least five six in the morning fretting about the game now steve smith might be up till three in the morning practicing essentially or shadow batting but the guy fretting has expended so much emotional energy that the yeah. next the next day he describes it as sort of like a pretty blurry so his legs mm. didn't work very well and and yeah that's that's the the energy that he's lost Steve Smith may not have lost because he's got the energy because he's so excited he doesn't see anything as a threat yeah. he's just seen it as an opportunity and that invigorates him rather than than debilitates him so yeah, it's a yeah. it's a chat. It's a. It only gets messy when a Steve Smith becomes the model, not an outlier. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, like it's when when you see kids like you know, I have a fourteen year old son who's cricket obsessed, but he would go for a net every day for two hours if my arm wouldn't fall off, <laughs> and none of it's done out of fear. It's done out of absolute just love. Like last and the other day was his favorite thing in the world. He's like, I love batting. It's not bad. <laughs> you know, sort of bat and bat and bat and bat and bat, and that's I love that. But yeah, but and you got to keep that as well, though. When you when you're a pro, you got to keep that because there are other external noises that come in. There's so much, as you know, in the professional sport, the the game does turn from a a, a pastime to a job, and then it's yeah. it's okay. That can I keep that passion? Keep the why I'm doing this and continue into it as on a professional level. No, I mean, even when I was working in cricket, um, you know, and did quite a bit of work with Auckland cricket, heaps of black caps in the team. And mm. I remember watching one net session where both guys were in there for an hour afterwards. And one was getting peppered and smiling and loving it. The other one was searching. Yeah. So the right. work ethic looked the same, but the motivation behind it was completely different. Yeah, that's so interesting. What, what? Yeah. So, if you your process when you sit down with an athlete, is there a, is there a framework, a way in which you work with them? Um, how does that work? Um, for you? Yes, yes, and no. There's a general general framework, but it's very general because everyone's so different. Yeah. You know, I like I would sort of use what I said before as like, are you delivering on, on what you're capable of? And the answer is always no. Okay, so there's a gap between capability and delivery. Mm. So what's in that gap? So that's sort of the thing that I'll explore and then pretty much go off a needs analysis model after that. So, you know, assess the need, prescribe an intervention or some tools and then monitor progress. So so that's why a skill-based approach to it is needed because... If you see it like a skill, then you train it like a skill. If you see it like, you know, and you know, I've made some ridiculous examples over the years. It's like saying to a, you know, an athlete, like, hey, like for you as a cricketer, you're batting real well right now, so no need to have a net. 
like we'd never you know never say that but let hey you you're playing well right now so no need to work on the mental side it just doesn't make sense to me mm-hmm. um but once again we can go back and go well if we treat it like a skill everything changes in the way that we do the work talk, talk to us about I, i've heard you really talk about this accountability and the way you work mm. is you place that accountability onto the athlete talk to yeah. talk to us about having accountability on your mental game as an athlete what does that look like and how do you see it yeah i mean accountability is to me is another word for ownership so like i don't want to hold you accountable at the end of the day i want you to own your career Mm -hmm. so you know like if i think of what's one characteristic that almost all the best have it's ownership so like they own they own their development, they own their performance, and then everyone around them is seen as a resource to support rather than someone, uh, you know, having to drive them to own their career. And so I think once you establish ownership, which to me the, the, the antithesis of ownership would be excuse-making, you know, give up sort of talk, you know, like, oh, it's not worth it, or, you know, or constantly seeking affirmation through insecurity so those sort of things are once i see them sort of emerging then what i want to try to do is empower the athlete to take some ownership over all the areas that they can that are threatening their performance and i suppose once that's in place so you know if the general concept of ownership is this is your career not mine i'm here as a resource then you have to drive your development. So my job isn't to keep you accountable. My job is to support you as you take ownership over your career. Else all you're doing is forcing people to do things that they're not going to do with integrity. And, you know, I'd much rather have a group of athletes that drive things and then you're almost waiting to catch up with them because they're so demanding of you rather than having to chase them all the time do work so even at the start of the year I, I say to them listen i'm not chasing anyone in the room for a one-on-one i'm not messaging you for that that's yours but if you want help i'll give you everything i've got so that's sort of my approach and then then it's working with the athlete around you know like let's be honest they'll more seek me out when they're not playing well yeah, this, um, yeah. which is like I, I can accept that like i'm not bothered by that this is what you do but I think what's really important to recognize is that the, the other parts of your game, you don't wait till your underperformance emerges to take ownership of them. So why are you doing it in this area? And then so my responsibility as a, as a coach in those settings is to ensure that they have the right information and the right tools and the right support to work on that. So if they come to me and said, listen, I really want to work on it and you have nothing for me. That's on me. That's completely on me. But if they know they have a resource and they know that the expertise that's in the room can help them and they choose not to, then listen, that's in, it's on them. What about the athletes that potentially don't believe in it? How, how do you try I to... I don't care. Had, could, are there ever, ever... Or I guess I'm, I think in my mind, I'm probably thinking about senior players, but then younger players yeah. who are. I have, quite- I have a policy like I've shared it before feed the hungry. I'm not trying to convince someone to eat. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's- you know, but I love the challenge of it. Like I had someone during the Six Nations beginning of the campaign said, Oh, yeah, we've had oh, two or three of you in the last number of years. We'll see how long you last. And I loved it. I was like, This excites me. And by the end of the Six Nations, he's one of my weekly one-on-ones every week, boxing. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But for an older player, like I'm I'm not trying to be facetious here or, you know, deliberately hostile about it. I I just don't – I don't have enough time and energy to convince someone to work on something that's important. But I suppose with the older athletes who haven't – I had one the other day I spoke to said, you've got three years left in the career. Why don't we work on this stuff and make sure those three years end well? And he was up for that. Hmm. You know, so it's probably about how you reframe that. And if he had said, nah, I'm not interested, well, okay, sweet, I'll move on. There's 30 other people in the room that I've got to try and help throughout the period of a week. Barely have enough time to get to all of them, so I'm not going to run around trying to convince people that they should have an appetite. You know, I just want to feed the people who are already hungry. 
John Lewis, who is now the England women's head coach in, in cricket here in the UK, he's a former teammate of mine, been on the podcast. He he described things like this. I, me- I remember he was a teammate of mine towards the latter part of his, well, he was a teammate, then he became my coach. And he said to me, I remember as we were rooming together, he was, he, he, we were talking around, he introduced me to yoga and he introduced me to talking to a psychologist. Yeah. And he just, I remember just his premise about all of it. He was like, you have all of these stones essentially put in front of you. Why would you not turn them all over and just take yeah. a look? And the worst thing that's going to happen is you just come back to where you are right now. And where you are right now is still a professional athlete, yeah. but you're sitting at your baseline of your potential right now. It goes back to what you said at the start is, is can you walk away from your career having known that you tried to eke out every aspect of yeah. your potential and you tried your hardest to to make that a reality and do I think there's a big difference between I don't know how to do this versus I don't want to do this. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Like anyone who's curious, that's, that's you know, I don't remember, I can be quite direct being a New Zealander. Sometimes we be a bit direct, but I remember speaking to a player last year, I said, you're just not good enough to ignore this part of your game. Yeah. Like you're actually not good enough to not be working on it. Like if you're at, the very top, I could understand maybe a bit of hesitancy, but you're actually not that good and you need help in this area. How'd they take that? Bit shocked, I think, initially, but then come back and we're like, you're right, let's let's go for it. You know, because they knew it, I knew it, you know. Yeah. I knew it would land probably rough, but I knew that they'd come back. And if they didn't, then I'm saying, oh, listen, this is a great example of someone who's running away from stuff rather than running towards stuff that can help them get better. Yeah, yeah, run towards it. That's a good point, uh, an amazing yeah. point. So you're, let's kind of move on to the the recent paper that you've done. So yeah, it's yeah. all around integ- integration of mental skills in, in teams. Yeah. Um, where did the sort of passion for that paper to come from or where the idea of that paper come from? Yeah, I sort of I shared on the, on the webinar probably a couple of things. Like the first was right back when I was beginning work, I was at a spring training in Phoenix, Arizona, and about 300 young men were on the minor league facility. This thing is minor and major leagues. And I said to the, the then manager at the time, how many of these guys make it? He said about 8% who get drafted playing the big leagues. And when you look out, they all look really good. They're all fit. Um, they all Their skill set just seems immaculate, all of them. Mm. And I said, well, what's the difference? And they all look, and he said, oh, the top two inches. I said, well, what are we doing about that? And he's like, nothing. Just walked away. And I went, oh, wow. So here's something that we know is important, but we don't do anything about it. Um, So that was first. And then secondly, it was probably I didn't really do much social media until probably three or four years ago. I just wasn't in a phase of my life with my kids and my family. But I was like, man, like this is something I got on LinkedIn. I thought I'm just going to share my experiences and what I've done and learned over the years and resonate with a hell of a lot of people. And then I started getting messages all the time of these really frustrated practitioners who were in a team and got hired and, you know, get a little bit of money here and there and nothing's working for them. And so those sort of two events go, it's too, too important of a subject to ignore. But we ignore it at our own peril because it's probably better to have no program than a poor program. So there's a fine line between that because if you have a poor program, then it just reinforces the narrative that the stuff doesn't work. Yeah. And so between those two things, I've seen really good people not getting a good shot to, you know, like I was, I was talking to a friend on the way home, driving home today, and I said, your talent can't out beat, outrun, the, can't outrun the system. Like you're a talented coach, but you're never going to outrun the power of the system. The system, if it's set up for you to not have success, it doesn't matter how good you are. And so, you know, that was sort of for me watching all of these really outstanding coaches and practitioners perpetually frustrated their inability to have the impact that they envisaged and not quite knowing why, but having these sneaking suspicions. So that was sort of the motivation behind the paper is that you know, I've watched this stuff grow and grow and grow over the years and now see, as I said before, a normalization or an acceptance of 
the mental side. Like that's that's there. Like you speak to any, I think every major league baseball team, every NFL, like every team now has someone. And yet, as the research sort of revealed, probably only 10 to 15% of those teams would have a program. And a program and a person are not the same thing. Completely different. That's true. Very true. I mean, the, the numbers that straight away at the very early part of the study that kind of shocked mm. me was that 100% of the participants said mental skills training is important. And then 11% yeah. said that it was in the strategy. So yeah. 89% is not in the strategy. Um, so it's not important. Like I don't care what they say. So it's the difference between perceived and actualized value. So the perception is we value the work and and reality or when we actualize that statement, the evidence of your value of the work is having a strategy for it to be delivered in an excellent way because no other other discipline of performance would you leave to chance, but yet this one you do. So, you know, the study sort of like hit me from two ends is one, there's not many teams to stuff, but two is that they actually think they are. Yeah. Like that was the part that probably got me the most and they actually think they value it. And I would say, show me two things in a, in a high performance environment that express value is how much money you're dedicating to a piece of work, but that's not the true value. It's how much time. So all of these environments, I work in a time poor. So take time to have the mental stuff at the forefront of your preparation and performance. To me, that's a demonstration of value, not because you hired someone. That great point. And I think it, just going on to some of the, well, one of the interesting obstacles that I, I think I found out of it was they wanted someone who, or they, they spoke about people who had sporting experience or yeah. had an understanding of the environment yeah, that from that resonated because I'm seeing that a lot as to why I get athletes who have someone in the organisation that will still come talk to someone like me, is based yeah. off the fact that they say, literally the start of the text messages is like, you've done it, you've been there, but then at the same time I think there are so many great coaches out there who haven't had that experience, who haven't necessarily played or have been in the sport but could really add value just through the person they are the way in which they go about it so it just struck me it's a really tough balance isn't it i think because you can have some great coaches out there but the perception is that you kind of need to have have experience in a sporting environment yeah i don't know what do you have any thoughts on that i think you've got to um understand this like it's not i wouldn't even put it in sporting you've got to understand every environment you work in yeah so like, i work across multiple environments throughout a year multiple sports and then some multiple corporate work and if you don't get what the environment is trying to accomplish like what are the demands in the environment what are the stresses in the environment what are the expectations in the environment and you know so for example i i look at sports in particular you know my field i go well there's three different kinds of sports that create three different mental pressures and mental demands, and, and they're not the same from sport to sport. And in fact, they're not even the same position to position. So for an example, like the endurance athletes, their training mentally is very, very different from a powerlifter <laughs> because what they have to do is mainly navigate through the conversation that they're having with themselves over three, four, five, six hours at times and maintain their focus where these voices are just hammering away at them. Then there's sports where you initiate the movement. So sports like golf and, or tennis or cricket, if you're a bowler, they offer a whole different set of challenges because now you have space to think and you're the one that begins the movement, that begins the game. And then you have reactive sports, which are, you know, most of the evasive sports. You don't have time. It's very instinctual based. So your decision-making, your ability to read things, your ability to adapt and adjust, the ability to move to the next moment quickly. Well, that's all stuff you've got to train for that. And even if we want to go further, if you look at, say, a sport like rugby, where what are the, the mental demands on a 10 are not the same as the mental demands on a hooker or a prop. So, mm. you know, we don't train them physically the same way. 
And we certainly don't train them technically the same way. So why would we train them mentally the same way? And so I think you have to understand, don't think you have to, to have played to understand, but you have to have been close enough to where the play happens and close enough to the athletes who are in those moments and watching them and observing to them and talking to them to actually get a real clear picture of their demands. And I think the weakness, particularly in the mental side, is that we have a lot of people who come in and they have theories that they've learned somewhere along the line and they try and cookie cutter them into an environment that they're not actually their needs. Mm. They're actually not really relevant to what that group or what the sport demands. And so, so if someone says, oh, like when you work with a sport, how do you develop what you do with them? I said, oh, it's easy. I just, uh, what's the mental demands of the sport? What does a mentally professional, proficient athlete do well in this sport, in this position? And if you can answer those two questions, then you've got a strategy. Yeah. Well, you've got a, you've got an anchor, haven't you, to sort of bring yeah. Yeah. the yeah. majority to and mould it individually yeah. how you see fit. Because um, the moment you get generalised without relevancy, the players don't see that as that helpful. Hmm. You know, so for example, I'll give you an example. Like with with um, with rugby, everybody knows that the fight flight thing is real. Like it's a psych theory. But they don't need to know that. What they need to know is when you get on the field, if you go into fight mode, you're probably going to overplay. So it's called overplaying. So you get ahead of yourself, try and solve problems by yourself. You um, go out of structure. You make bad decisions. But then you can underplay, which is you disappear, you stop talking, you go to the end of the line. It's just a reaction. It's a psychological reaction to stress. But they don't need to know all of the information about the psychological responses to stress. What they need to know is when they feel something, they can recognize it and know that they're in this sort of state and they can adjust. So a lot of your work, I I assume, is going to be on that initial relationship building, understanding that person, the environment, before you even... Yeah, I mean, I have a very clear process around that. So um, step one is connect with the person, not necessarily with the athlete. Find out who they are, what makes them tick. Number two is that connection enables trust. So then you starting to get into some good space once you understand, once they trust you. And not that they trust you as a person, they trust your competency. And then once you've got connection and trust, then you can have impact or influence. Mm-hmm. So you can't have influence without those first two steps, um, not long-term influence. So there's a bit of work at the front end. Um, but, you know, I think that's probably the most enjoyable part because you get to discover what, what really makes these these guys tick so your paper was uh, a bit of a, a dive into understanding what's going on why is it not happening so what do you believe where do we go from here to changing that 11 percent that say it's not in the strategy to opening yeah. up the world to i really liked your analogy of tra- we don't train we train the body differently for each individual but we also train the physical side where do we add in that time for the mental side? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, it's a long question. I could mm. talk for hours about this stuff because it's the stuff that most interests me. But I think, you know, and I talked about this on the webinar, you know, I've got a pretty simple process. Like when I work, so if a team comes in and says, we have nothing, what do we, where do we start? Well, firstly, we need to define what model you want. And there's so many different, I'm not talking about academic models here. I'm talking about practical models. So mm-hmm. all the way from you don't have a program to you have a minimalist approach, which is someone comes in during preseason. You have a deficit approach, which is you got someone in the building to fix underperforming athletes. You have the skill approach, which is we treat it like the other skills, sort of what I alluded to before, and we work at it through that lens. And then you have an integrated model, which is the mental side impacts how we coach, impacts how we um, do our recruiting, it impacts how we select, it impacts our pathway, it just impacts everything. So you've got to define first what model you want for your team and then after that what framework needs to be created for the work to be delivered through and then what content is important, then how we deliver it properly. So then I would go to finding the right person. So 
like right now, the worst thing that you can possibly do in this area for a team is go, let's go find someone that someone comes in and then the first day someone says, oh, this is, you know, Jimmy, he's our new sports cycle mental performance coach. He's going to be in one and a half days a week. If you want to catch up, go see him. Yeah. I couldn't think of a worse way of trying to integrate the work. In fact, it's just going to destroy the work. So, so going back to that, then, you know, there's so many, oh, mate, we could go all night about what are the keys to integration. But I think one of the keys are is understanding that you want to build a program that's strategic, not offer a reactionary service. And I think if you get that one concept, then you can build out a, a program and some strategy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers it, but I think you have to be incredibly strategic. And then outside of that, it's all relationships. So well, I know that my work success is determined by my alignment with the head coach. So because we don't, we have to be on the same page, have to be delivering the same messages, has to be reinforcing the right stuff. And so if I'm not aligned with a coach and I find that out either in the interview process or a few months into the work, I'm out. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's not worth it. It was a big part of the paper, wasn't it, that the key stakeholders have to be on board? Yeah, yeah. And not just on board as in, yeah, we've done that, someone's here, but on board and driving the work. You know, so I'm fortunate, like, with our club and – Let's say Scotland rugby and different teams that I work with, I get a session every single week, part of a session with the team. And it's just, we've done it, I say, with the Chiefs for three or four years. It's just part of what we do. Yeah. And I saw actually you you sent out you sent out a newsletter this morning, well, my morning, your evening. Yeah. And it mentioned about coaches having an understanding of psychology. Yeah. And that I think this this is where do you think the coaches? It's better off if the coaches have done the work, but more importantly, just understand the work. Oh, massively! Like, you know, like I was thinking about it, you know, before I sent that out um, this morning, and you know, like I had a, a colleague send me a really profound insight the other day who had just read the paper, and he said the problem with a lot of the the mental skills or psych stuff is that the head coach can do most of that himself yeah self like motivation clarity confidence that's part of their job so you got to bring some value add somewhere along the line and so that's why that relationship is so critical because the ultimate shaper of the mindset of a team is not me it's it's the head coach and then my job's to provide the support and tools and reinforcement for that mindset to be present and you know a lot of the teams that i work with we have a mindset anchor that we'll use every single week that is something that collectively we agree on from a mindset perspective is going to be important for us to do well so we can deliver our performance so it's linked back to performance all the time yeah i think i think back to environments i've been in that if the work itself has seen us put on the shelf go get it when you need it whereas if if there's a coach that's saying no, I've done this. I I believe, or I I understand this. This is where it's going to work. The buy-in yeah. is 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 almost ten x. Just as a yeah, and then, then it becomes really cool conversations. Like yeah, like I had one head coach the other day. He's like, "Do you reckon we need a different mental approach to playoffs? What do we need to be aware of?" And I'm like, what a great question from a coach. Just quite curious around. Do we treat it like any other game or do we acknowledge the situation? Like just a really good question mm. um, that then enables him to shape his message for the week. So I see it much more as a partnership, but the main deliverer of the key messages should be the head coach. And then my job's just to come and reinforce that with some tools or some like, you know, the way I describe it is on the Monday, our coach will give the menu, then I provide the ingredients. Yeah. So here's the mindset anchor for the week. All right, while she come Thursday, you're going to tell us how we do that. Yeah. So you, that's the fun I'm, part. I'm very cautious of time. Was there anything yeah. in the paper that surprised you? Um, was there anything that surprised me? That's a great question. I suppose 
probably the only thing that surprised me was the it didn't surprise me but it reinforced the message that we are not doing a very good job at transitioning people from education into practice hmm. so once again like it came through so many times highly qualified really really nice person i suppose but when it came to the practical embedding of the work wasn't able to do that so I think that either goes back to what you said at the beginning, like is it an experience thing? We just got to create more experiences or is it an education and training thing where what they're actually teaching in applied psychology is that not actually relevant to what happens when they get into one of these teams? I, I having done a bit of reading in the, in the literature over the last couple of years, one of the things I think I have seen and this is just putting my athlete practical mind in, is that there are very few papers that actually, especially when there's an intervention done, where they they almost lay out the steps of what happens. It's, it's kind of just put in the procedure part in text, but people that can see how, it's, how it works through the way it's displayed, there's a... Yeah. There's a paper that was done in Australia around mental toughness, and it was it essentially outlined a it outlined eight weeks of mental skills training. But it, the the table was brilliantly presented. And it, it's a real it's a go to paper for a lot of people in mental toughness because they outlined this eight week strategy of how they implemented all of what they were talking about. And it, I kind of look at it and go, it's like giving someone a physical training program and saying. Yeah. Here's what's good for you. Here's how you. Here's sort of what you need to do, but they're not giving you the on Monday we do this, Tuesday you do that, Wednesday and not giving them that and just going all the best. And that 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 for me, I think, is just been something I've seen in in the literature that it's almost what people are hungry for. They're hungry like, okay, great. How do I actually do this? So maybe there's this is just off the top of my head is that there are not enough examples for people that are going through the process of education and then go into being a practitioner that they actually know how to put it into work because they haven't seen anything or as much as what they would like to. Yeah, that's just a just a thought off the top of my head, really. Yeah, and I think there's there's a lot to be said around just thinking as as you're saying that is like like all of the things that I would do on a daily basis within a team context, if you look through the literature none of it would be in there. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a, a valid point, but you know, I you know, I feel I feel the the conflicts, particularly for younger people, is like, well, how do I start gaining this experience? Like, you know, I guess it's all right for me. I'm just about 47, been doing this for a long time and have had so many of experiences. So when something comes up tomorrow, there's chances are that's come up in the last 20 years and I know what to do. Yeah, <laughs> and someone asked the other day, like, how do you, how do you seem to know what to do? I was like, one, I've made a hell of a lot of mistakes, so, but I've been a good learner from those. But secondly, once your database of experience is built, you just like it's just going and grabbing a file. I remember here's a file from nineteen, you know, ninety nine, or here's one from two thousand and eight when we had this situation. And I've always probably through my upbringing, I've always been told to be solution focused. Like my mum was always really big on that. And so I think as a practitioner, I have to look straight away if there's a problem, what's the answer? And I feel like some of these papers are not looking for answers. They're just looking for conclusions. Mm. And so if you make a conclusion, like it's like being a critic, right? Like it's easy to be a critic. It's harder to be a prophet. You know, a critic can just point out what's going wrong. A prophet, for use of a better term, has to provide the way out for people. Like, okay, so this is happening. What do we do now? How do we respond to that? And I suppose, you know, watching this work over the last number of years, there's still a lot of people who are, are really good at pointing out problems, but I don't know how good they are at offering solutions. Well, that that I think my theory around this is that because of that pointing out the problems and you just touched on it is that a lot of people in this space are worried about getting it wrong yeah. and that's the same and ath athletes do the same thing but through the fact that a lot of the research it, it can be critique based 
that yeah. if I put if I put but it that's where you love that curiosity though, don't oh, you? Like totally. Wayne Smith had Wayne Smith did an interview this week on TV and just got knighted, and he said over fifty percent of what I tried to do hasn't worked. Great, and he's so relaxed about it. Like, oh well, we gave it a shot, just didn't work, and you know, like, but the stuff that has worked, I just keep on doing. So, you know, like the, I suppose, like the fear of failure destroys creativity Mm. and so you don't have innovation and creativity without risk and failure and so it's just those who are willing to endure some of the pain of failure and getting it wrong and end up becoming the innovators and the ones that can't tolerate getting it wrong are so fear fearful of the consequences of getting it wrong they don't move anything they just stay in their lane and so like our relationship with failure, not just as athletes, but as people, I reckon determines our growth. Like, will we grow or will we not? I'll, I'll tell you this. I'll give you a simple answer. Are you willing to fail or are you avoiding it at all costs? Um, if you're willing to fail, then you'll grow. You'll be fine if you can learn. But if you're not going to fail, you're not going to grow. Yeah, that's that's so true for not only just athletes, but for for practitioners in this space but um look aaron thank you so much for your time just before we we wrap up here one thing i always ask people just before we leave is is there anything at the moment that you are recommending whether it's a book a film a documentary a a quote that has inspired you that you're potentially recommending at the moment i'm just actually reading anthony bourdain's book right Uh, kitchen confidential it's pretty interesting. Yeah, really interesting, actually. I mean, a in- very incredibly interesting character. Yeah, just like um, I just finished the last two I finished that I enjoyed. I, got, I did Green Lights with Matthew McConaughey. That was a – and then I've just finished Dave Grohl's book. All right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, like, I like music. So, yeah, I'm not so probably much as I used to be into downloading – Atomic Habits and listening to it for a week. Like, I love that stuff still, but I, I suppose, I don't know how you feel. As you get older, you, I get more interested in stories than I do in principles. Totally. I think I think you can read so many self-development books and what we've spoken about here is a very, really just go put it into practice, learn. And that, that's yeah. what the stories are, right? The stories are people going out yeah. there, trying something, getting it wrong. Yeah. And then that's sort of their guideline. And, and not necessarily to copycat it or or copy it but to do it in your own way but just through being inspired by it i think is the is the way and i mean i, I guess i'm probably a little bit biased very good friend but i still think like owen eastwood's book belonging there's a brilliant book on teams probably the best book i've ever read on teams right okay um, and it no, comes from a very different angle um so owen's a kiwi lives in the cotswoods and works with gareth southgate on the right. culture of the English football team and lots of other, he's worked all over the place, NATO. And and he wrote a book called Belonging that became a, you know, I think a pretty much a bestseller in the UK. And it sort of just speaks deeply into our need to belong and understand that as a foundation of healthy teams. That's hmm. a I brilliant mean, book. So. I mean, you're coming from New Zealand. It's something that is just ingrained in the, in the way of life yeah. out there, oh, I mean, having, culture, yeah. I mean, we having have read, these... we've I've had uh, James Kerr wrote Legacy yeah. on the podcast, and yeah. yeah, if anyone's read Legacy, you just get an understanding of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, the concept that shines through Legacy and obviously through Belonging is Fokker Papa, which is mm-hmm. you know the idea that you don't exist by yourself; you're an unbroken chain from your ancestors into the future. And while the sun is shining on you, you've got an opportunity to do something. Mm. Yeah, wow. So your job is to respect those that have gone before you and honor them and to prepare, you know, a nice clear road for those who are yet to come. Mm. Amazing. I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. That was uh some really great moments there to finish it on. Just really quickly, where where's the best place for for people to, to oh, find I'm still you? On LinkedIn and Twitter. Yeah, LinkedIn and Twitter. So Aaron Walsh, I think you'll find me. Um yeah, it's been a really interesting and enjoying part. To, you know, like, you know, I thought I'd throw this webinar out there and get, you know, 50 or 100 people jump on and there were 800 people ended up being registered. And it's like, holy heck, there is some hunger out here for this stuff. 
that that's that's the definite theme I'm seeing is that there is hunger for it. And yeah, yeah I mean, I think I think since the webinar, I've had like six teams reach out and just go, "We need help." Wow. You know, so obviously you can't do all that. So I need to train <laughs> someone. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's a hard one to train because it's not like oh, I can give you a, a reference book and go go learn this and then you can help a team build a program. Like so much of it is developed in the dirt and, mm-hmm. and going back to what you said, that's why I've liked my journey, like practitioner first and then more academic later. And that's been a really helpful for me because, you know, when I went back into the academic stuff and it probably sounds arrogant, but I found it quite easy because all they want you to is talk about experiences. And when you're my age, you have a few, <laughs> you know, so you can draw on that as a reference point for your, your theories and your principles and your ideas. So that was just the right rhythm for me. Yeah. Amazing. But Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Really, really appreciate it. It's been a, a, a really brilliant episode. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome.